in the entirety of the world. Oh, maybe you must have fine jewelry. If I possess fine jewelry, that means I'm a rich person. What if I have the latest technology, the latest iPad, the latest Apple product, that is phone? What if I own my own private jet? Do these possessions prove that one is truly rich? You see, when a person has these things, the world will consider them to be one who is rich and prosperous. One who has all the wealth and riches in the world. But we all know if the depression or recession is evidence of anything, the famine will hit. And those possessions, just as quickly as they receive them, can float away in the wind. And they can lose everything just as fast. You see, I believe our passage today in John chapter two gives us a narrative which is somewhat a metaphoric or parallel to the condition of Israel, a once prosperous nation with all the wealth that they can imagine now in poverty, serving the powers that are at large. So for us to think even about our possessions and our prosperity and our even our relationship with God, let us turn to John chapter two, John chapter two. John is the third is the fourth gospel there in the New Testament. John chapter two, begin reading at verse number one. Amen. John chapter two, beginning at verse number one. And it reads this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jugs there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted, the water now became wine and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, they, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, and doers of his sanctified word. For a thought today, 
I like to use for a title, Better Than Good Wine. Better Than Good Wine. You see, Jesus' ministry has just begun. Like we learned last week, we're in the early stages of Jesus' ministry here on earth. But we know from the Gospel of John that it began with these announcements about Jesus and it kind of rings throughout the entire first chapter of who Jesus is. Throughout the first chapter, we get seven titles given to Jesus himself. The first of which he is the word of God, the word incarnate, verses one through three and verse 14. We hear that he is the light in the life of men. He's the light of the world in which there's no darkness at all. Verse four and nine. We hear that Jesus is the true son of God. Verse 14, verse 34 and verse 49. We see that he is the son of the father, God. We see that he is given the title of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Verse 17 and verse 41. We see also he is heralded as the Lamb of God, verse 29 and 35, which takes away the sins of the world. We also see that he is the King of Israel, verse 49. And then Jesus himself professes him to be the Son of Man in verse 51. So now Jesus, these proclamations about Jesus have been made. Now Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and his disciples have been called. His first disciples, more specifically in Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip and Nathaniel. You see, it, this starts as the beginning of Jesus ministry and through the proclamation of Jesus's true nature. Uh, people are beginning to follow him. And with the Messiah, with the promised believer at the helm, I'm sure his Jewish followers are ready for Israel to be restored to their former glory. Finally, the one they've been waiting for, they're ready to be restored to the glory of Israel. We are told in verse 11 that this is the first of the signs that Jesus did, that Jesus, the promised restorer of Israel, the Messiah, this is the first of his signs, which he recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And the people of Israel were once a prosperous nation, that, but they were grown out of this kind of barren seed. They weren't always prosperous. God grew them to become this prosperous nature, this nation. Uh, out of their, their patriarch, one of those we often mention, out of Abraham, we see them grow into this mighty nation. And they will conquer their enemies. They will possess great riches and they will be noted for all of history and time. And this is right for it because this is what God promised that would exactly happen to his people. He covenanted with Abraham, with his people. He binded and had this promise that he would make his people a prosperous nation. He established this covenant, this promise with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the, throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. 
And he turns around and says, well, your part in this covenant is to devote yourself to me. Their part was to devote themselves to God and to God alone. Deuteronomy 18 and 8, he says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is that day. So we know Israel, if you're familiar with their story, they would not remember God. They would not keep God first. Matter of fact, they would bring other gods into their camp. They would make other gods in replacing the God of Israel. Most notably, the story in Exodus chapter 32, when the people, after being delivered from Egyptian bondage, would build a golden calf. We see they're already taking up the gods of other nations. But not only taking up the gods of other nations, but they're also taking up the kings like other nations. First Samuel 8, they start begging, give us a king like the other nations. They have rejected the one who has entered into a covenant with them and has made them prosperous. They've rejected the one who's delivered them. They've rejected the one who gives them their blessings. You see, there is nothing special about them. But yet God will reveal his glory to them and he would bless his people, but they would reject him. Since they, since they forgot their promises, since they forgot their God, and since they made other kings and they wanted to be like the nations, they will eventually be brought into captivity and into exile. People once of a great possession now possessed by another kingdom. And although they had gone after other gods, Jehovah, their personal God, who has this relationship with them, will continue and make another cover, another promise with his people. And we see this recorded in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He tells them, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them and gave them out of the hand of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each of them teach his neighbor, each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. When we consider this covenantal language of God and his people in this verse, it draws out some strong parallels between the covenantal language which God gives to his people and that of marriage. It, those ties and this language of belonging to one another, being made one, being known by one another. Tom Schreiner, uh, he writes in one of his books that marriage is part of the context that God writes into creation to highlight the heroic nature of Christ. Marriage exists so that people will understand Christ's love for the unworthy bride and his ability to cleanse, sanctify and transform the lost and broken. So that he presents her to himself as a thing of beauty and glory at no cost to the bride, but at the cost of his own life. 
we talk about this covenant language, this relationship with God and this prosperity which he gives to them. And taking into context, into consideration of the means and the importance of this covenant relationship, this wedded relationship and the blessings that come with being made one and covenant with God. It is no coincidence that John in his gospel with his first recorded sign starts at a wedding, a wedding in Cana of all the places. He begins by pointing his readers back to the covenant which he should have with his people in Christ. He starts with a wedding. You see, God's covenant with his people is fulfilled now, not by their power, not by their obedience, but it's fulfilled by the power and the obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that will make their covenant one and make them one again, not their works. It is now Jesus Christ who will fulfill this, who will fulfill this covenant. And I believe we can see this kind of flow out in three details here today from our text. One, I think you'll see it in the poverty of the people. The secondly, the power that is in Christ and the, power, and the prosperity that comes with being united in Christ. First, let's talk through the poverty. Verse three, we read in verse three this. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples and the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Simple details here in this narrative account. We see that at this wedding, we can assume that there was once wine for the guests to have. But now it has come to be realized by the mother of Jesus and Jesus himself and the servants. And pretty sure I'm sure by the whole entire wedding party that the wine has ran out. Or to put it more bluntly, there is no more wine. And for this to happen at the wedding of all places where time and preparation has been given to, it is somewhat shameful to be presented as people at the wedding who have run out of wine. It is like they have not prepared. It is like they have taken no consideration of their guests and now to be found with no wine whatsoever can bring shame upon the wedding party. You see, much of the physical and even economical disposition of the people of Israel can be found just like this. They, too, have been found with no wine left, no wine. Their wine has run out. They once were a people prosperous. They once were a people with great wealth and could entertain the people. But now they have no wine. You see, this is also a sign of their spiritual condition. This is also a sign of the emptiness and barrenness of the people of Israel, because now they have nothing within themselves to give. They've become dry. They've run out of wine. And you see, even with the wine, something such a natural thing, which which grows there with the people, they should have been ready for it and should have been ready for the people. But nevertheless, they find that they are insufficient within themselves. Their wine runs out. And it's going to be the same even with us as his people. 
You see, it may not be wine for us, but whatever it is that we think gives us prosperity and makes us presentable before the people, it will run out. Your money, it will run out one day. Your health, it will run out one day. Your mental capacity, it will run out one day. Whatever it is you trust in, it will run out one day. And just like the people here, you will be before others and you'll recognize I have nothing within myself. It will run out and you have no wine whatsoever. But you see, the good thing about Jesus is that he knows this and that he sees this. He sees our our poor and desolate state. He sees that that we are not sufficient within ourselves. We can't even continue to provide for ourselves. He sees our poor state and he offers himself as a way to care for us. He cares for us as the good bridegroom does for his bride. He cares for the bride as he should. He's the one that Mary comes to when they finds out there is no more wine within themselves. You see, Christ is the better husband. Christ is the better bridegroom that they should turn to when they realize that there is nothing left for them to give. And it's the same for you and I. When you recognize that we too are empty and dry and there is nothing for us left to give, we should turn to Jesus. We should come to him knowing that he will love us as a good husband should love his wife. Ephesians 5, 25, just as Christ's love for the church is seen, how he gave up himself for her. You see, I think it's helpful that we turn people from the gifts, from the wine, from the prosperity to the one who actually gives us good gifts. To the one who is the giver of gifts, the one who is the giver even of life himself. And even when we lack those things, we should be turned. We should go running after Jesus, the one who gives us life. And I think it's, it's even helpful for us as a congregation to help one another turn each other to Jesus in that way. Knowing that he is the one that gives us life. He is the one that gives us the possessions of life. He's the one that gives us blessings. It is helpful for us to turn each other to Jesus. A great way of which we do this is just simply by praying with and for one another. Praying with each other that we will help turn our eyes to Jesus. And when we pray, pray that we know and having confidence that we serve a Christ. We serve a risen Savior who can provide for his people. I do believe that's why Mary, the mother of Jesus, turns to him because she knows if anyone can provide in this situation is Christ. If anyone can help in this circumstance, it's Jesus. It wasn't the servants. It wasn't the master of the party. It wasn't the groom. It wasn't the bride, but it was Jesus himself. So in the same way, when we run out of our own resources, let us turn to Jesus. You see, although we may find ourselves often in poverty in this life, whether it be in possessions or in our own physical state, we turn to Jesus. Why? Because he is the one that has power power jesus has 
power, even power unlike this world has ever seen. Now, we can read this story and think, oh, look, he just turned water into wine. But my friends, a miracle has just happened right before our eyes. The power of God has been on display, but yet we will treat them just as words on a page. This a miracle has just taken place and we just read of it more spectacular than anything else. We've just seen the power of God on display. We see God, Jesus, change water into wine. We see Jesus, the one who creates the water. Jesus, the one who put the waters in the sea and in the sky. We see Jesus change water into wine. You see, we can do a lot of things with water. We can put them in lakes. We can put them in buckets. We can make dams with them. We can do a lot of things with water. We can even add things to it and turn it to something else. We can take these little packets and add it to water and turn it to Kool-Aid. You got to add sugar into that too. But we can do a lot of things with water by us acting with it and adding things to it. But look at Jesus here. He doesn't even touch the jars. Jesus doesn't even interact with the jars. He doesn't say water turned into wine, but he calls his servants. He calls the servants to go fill the jars to the brim. He calls the servants to go dip it out and to give it to the master. Jesus seemingly has no interaction with the physical himself. But yet he divinely works to change the water into wine. This is a divine act by a divine being, because as human, we would have to touch it and add things to it. Jesus can literally stand afar and water can be changed into wine. But yet we see this phrase given to us in verse three, thinking about this fact that his hour has not yet come. His time has not yet come and he can't entrust himself to people. What does he mean by this? His hour has not come. Well, he's throughout Jesus's ministry, as we continue to read throughout the book of John, we'll see, especially in places like Galilee, the people, all they will want is signs. All they will want is the power of Jesus to be on display. They don't want to think about who Jesus truly is. They just want the things that Jesus gives. They just want the power. They just want the wine. They just want the fish. They just want the bread. They don't want God himself. And Jesus knew his hour had not come. So he does this in a way where he still provides for those in the party, but yet continues in the will of God. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah, as Messiah, but it clearly was not the Messiah that they had in mind. The Messiah they had in mind was be the one who would just quickly give them all their possessions. But Jesus has this somewhat elusive nature to himself in performing miracles. He will often perform miracles and then secretly go off into the wilderness or up into the mountain or into the boat to pray, to seek God. That they would try to make him king as he performed these miracles. But Jesus would duck off into the night. It would not be that these miracles in wine Uh, or these miracles of fish that we'll see later in John, that they're bad things. But he just knew that these weren't the miracles that were going to exalt him. It wasn't going to be the miracle of water being changed into wine that will secure his relationship with his people. 
He knew that it wasn't going to be just the miraculous signs of which he did among the Galileans, among the Jewish people that were going to make them one in God the Father. He knew this because it didn't happen the first time. When he gave them the land as a possession, when he gave them the land flowing with milk and honey, when he gave them water from the rock, when he gave them the manna that fell from heaven, even those blessings themselves did not keep the people united with God. Jesus knew that it wasn't the material things in his power that he can give that will make them one. So he works in this secret nature still providing for his people, but going to point them to the true miracle, the true miracle that would happen on a cross, the miracle where he would take the sins of mankind and die for them and be resurrected from the dead. We can't treat Jesus as if he's like a state farm agent. You know, some of you have seen those State Farm commercials where they do the jingle like a good neighbor. State Farm is there and the agent pops up and just gives them whatever they want. He says, I want a hot tub and the hot tub just drops out of the sky into their bedroom. Jesus is not just some magical, mystical, miracle vending machine. He's trying to be one who makes us one with God himself. We just can't punch in a miracle that we want and then expect him to give out wealth and riches. But he's trying to make us truly rich, truly blessed in Christ Jesus, in God, the father, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. We still can ask God for these things. We still can ask him to bless us in these ways and rejoice when he does give it to us. But we have to be ready when we ask for miracles or ask for things to be blessed to us by God. We have to still rejoice if he tells us my grace is sufficient to you. If we punch in the button trying to get more money and what he gives us is his grace. We must say your grace is sufficient. If we want the new car, the new clothes or the new possession, whatever it may be, but yet we all we get is his grace in Christ Jesus. We even then must say your grace is sufficient. Paul even had this feeling. He knew what it was like to have this thorn in the flesh. And he asked the Lord multiple times, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? And he tells him, no, but my grace is sufficient. This is the true power of God in our life. That although on this side of earth, we may be lacking in all the material wealth and possessions, but we are never lacking in his grace. His grace is grace upon grace. Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth in himself. You want to see true power? See grace on display on your behalf. See the grace of Christ as it walks here on earth, yet does not commit any sin. He lives a sinless life. See the grace that is given to you and him dying for your sins on a cross See the grace that is given for you as he is raised again in life and tells you you can join too in this resurrection, in this power you too can walk in. This is the grace. If we lose all else, 
if we have this grace, if we have this power within us, we too will be sufficient. This is the greatest power on display for us in Jesus. And it's just as great as him turning water into wine. It is just as great as any other blessing. It's the grace that we see in him making us his people. But we've talked about poverty. We talked about his power. But it all leads to the idea that we have this prosperity in Christ Jesus. Now, we talked a lot about this idea of wine in this text. I think the idea of wine throughout the Old Testament, and New Testament is just the sign of prosperity, the sign of blessing. When Noah comes off the ark there in, in, in Genesis, we see the first thing he does is plant a vineyard. So we see that the fruit of the vine is, is a sign of prosperity throughout the text. And we see that even in today's context, the idea of prosperity is somewhat taken to kind of twist it into making it their own ideas and their own possessions. The idea of prosperity is not the idea that we can have all the riches in the world. That's not true prosperity. True prosperity is not mentioned in the Bible in the sense we see in those televangelists, which you see on TV. That if you just sow the seed of kindness, you'll reap a million dollars in the next week. That's not true prosperity. That's more of a con artist than anything else. This wine is a sign of prosperity. We see it here even in our text. In verse 7, he tells them to go fill up the jars which are used for the purification of Jews. Now these things, these jars which they filled are, they're huge. They're, they're not small little uh, handles, handled, handled jugs, but these are 20, 30 gallon pots. And he tells the servants to fill them to the brim. It is a sign of abundance, the sign of they're going to have more than what they need. It's the sign of in, even with the wine, they're going to have it filled to the brim. And not only will there be an abundance of this wine, but this wine is going to be better than the best wine. Verse 10, he said, the master of the feast says to everyone, serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But even Jesus here he has given the wine that is better than what's supposed to be the good wine. Now it's in abundance, but it's better than what Jesus gives. It's better what Jesus gives. You see, everyone would bring the good wine first in the wedding ceremony. And it was to make them drunk, and then they would bring out the somewhat diluted things to continue to add to the feast. You see, and that's often kind of how prosperity kind of paints itself even in the life of this world. It'll give you the sweet things at first, but if you keep if you keep digesting them, if you keep drinking of them, it will only cloud your judgment and it will bring out something else more bitter later. It'll bring you out something more diluted later. You think it's actually something that's good and sweet and brings happiness, but it will not last. The wine will run out and they'll start bringing out the poor wine. They'll bring out things that are not beneficial. They'll bring out things that they'll tell you will dull the pain of this life. They'll tell you that it'll make you happy or give you all the good feelings. But the good wine in which the world gives is false prosperity because it will run out. And when it does run low or run out, they'll start bringing you something else. 
and those things will not give you life. Now, it's worth being noted here. As we talk about the idea of the blessing of wine and alcohol, like this is not a passage which is trying to bring focus on a prohibition or not a prohibition of alcohol. But I do say in wisdom to you all, think wisely about drinking and about alcohol and about wine. These things are not to be meddled with or to be thought lightly of. We know we have seen generation after generation who have thought lightly about the wine of this world, thinking the physical wine, and have ended up in debauchery, have ended up in drunkenness, and have ended up destroying families and their own lives. So this is not to say to enjoy wine to an excess. This is to say to think better about the one who gives a better gift. This is to say to turn to him, not just to go looking after the possessions and the prosperity of this world, but this is to turn to the one who gives you good gifts. This is to say, don't go sipping from every cup that's given to you. This is to say to hold out for the better wine, hold out for the better feast. You see, the world will offer you sweet things. They will offer you things that look glamorous. But the call for the Christian is to hold out for what's best. Hold out for what Jesus gives himself. Jesus gives you, he gives you an invitation, not just to an earthly wedding feast, but he gives you one to a heavenly one. He invites you to a heavenly wedding feast where he calls you to sup and to drink with him. So you can abstain even from all the glamorous things in this life, knowing that in eternity you will receive your heavenly home. You will receive a better feast with Jesus Christ. But not only will it be things that you receive, we're not just talking possessions here, but we will see the greatest blessing of all. And if you don't even read the text, you will you'll completely go right over it. The greatest blessing in this text is not that the wine is filling to the brim. It's not that the fact that that the wine had run out, but now they have new wine. It's not even the fact that the water has been changed into wine. But the greatest blessing, the greatest gift in this text is found in verse 11. In verse 11, it says this. The first of Jesus signs did at Canaan in Galilee and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The greatest thing in this text is that those who followed Jesus were able to see his glory. Forget the pots of wine, forget the pots of water. The greatest thing of which they saw in this text is their savior glorified. I wonder in your own life, is that the greatest thing that you can behold? Or would you consider that other possessions are worthwhile? Something is greater than following after Jesus, the one whom we will see glorified. Saints, there is nothing better than beholding and seeing Christ revealed in his glory. So come see this Christ revealed. God, the only son of God, glorified before his followers. Better than the good wine of this world, Jesus is better than any prosperity of this world because when we behold him glorified, we will say truly he does all things well. 
Truly, he is the one we should be following. Truly, this is the one we have been waited for. We may with hope be withheld of prosperity here, but when we see his glory, we know it was all worth it in the by and by. So we might not have self-driving cars. That's fine. He himself would deliver us into paradise. We may not be able to get to space and live on Mars, but who cares? We will have a heavenly home and a mansion up there. We may not have luxury yachts. We may not have luxury cars, but our Savior is the one who can walk on water. So we might not even need a boat in the first place. We might not need have the fine jewelry that this entire world. We might have not have Gucci, but we are adorned with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We might not have a private plane, but he will raise us up on eagle's wings before our God and present us pure and blameless. This is the better wedding which we're looking for. This is the better prosperity and it's all found in Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Savior. So glory to his name. Let us pray. God, we come to you as the one who is the giver of gifts. And knowing that the greatest gift of which you've given is in Jesus Christ. The one who bled, suffered and died for our sins. So I pray, Father, that in our impoverished state, that we would turn and repent and believe just as his disciples did. They would believe in Jesus, the one who gives us life the one who gives us blessings, the one who gives us of his very self. And then at one day, at that great wedding feast, where we are one with you, we will do nothing but praise your name all day late, all the day long, giving glory to our Savior and to our King. May this be our hope. May this be our expectation. Until that day, Father, I pray that you keep us and bless us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Turn to page one four, one four zero down.